Well, good evening. Sean, I forgot to get you to introduce me, but he kind of did. He mentioned the word budget cuts, so uh, it's very encouraging. Thank you. For those who may not know me, my name is Jamie Boland. I was here at Subi Church from 2009 when my wife and I first joined. Uh, in 2013, we were sent out by Subi Church to South Sudan, where we were planning to serve longer term as missionaries. Unfortunately, the war there led us to Uganda in 2014. And uh, we returned home two weeks ago, just got off the plane, and uh, we're adjusting to the cold, but it's great to be home at Subi Church. Uh, ben, unfortunately, has, he doesn't have COVID, but he is unwell. He rang me yesterday and said, look, you're up this week, uh, if you've got something you can share. And what I'm doing tonight, Psalm 51, something simple, but if you happen to be here in 2017, I spoke at a young adults uh, service on a Sunday evening. So not so many young adults here. So if you were here, this is a repeat. If not, this is the, the first time. Let's commit this time to the Lord. Father, we thank you that we can come as your people, that we can gather, that we can worship you. We ask and pray now that as we come around your word, your spirit would speak to us. And your word would impact us in the way that you want it to. Father, we thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. So Anita, if you could show that first slide, please. Some of you may know this man. Anyone not know him? This is Bill Clinton. He was the 42nd president of the United States of America. It's an office that many people consider to be the leader of the free world. The second slide, Anita. Anyone know this lady? Yeah, a few laughs. This is Monica Lewinsky. Now, she was a young intern who was hired to work at the White House and no doubt infatuated by the charm and charisma and power that's exuded by the president. She and Bill Clinton commenced what we'd call a special friendship. Now, there's just one problem. Bill Clinton was married to a lady named Hillary. Here she is. We know her. Thank you. Now, he's married. She has future presidential aspirations, so it's best that we keep our special friendship a secret, our little secret. No one else needs to know. The trouble is, Monica Lewinsky, she, she liked to confide in one of her friends. It was a friend who worked at the Department of Defense. And this friend also liked to keep secrets. She liked to keep them recorded on a, well, she had them on a tape recorder. So as Monica would pour out her heart over the phone, confiding with her friend just how special her relationship with Bill Clinton was, the whole thing was being recorded. Soon, the whole world was going to know just how special their friendship was. What happened was those tapes got into the hands of a man named Kenneth Starr. He was investigating Bill Clinton for other things he'd done. And before too long, it's front page headlines. The whole world knows what's going on. Let's get serious for a minute, because we can laugh at this sort of stuff. What do we do as human beings when we, when we you know, it seems that our sin is going to be exposed and that our dirty little secrets are going to come out? What do we do when we have something shameful to hide and our reputations to protect? Listen to what Bill Clinton said as the scandal broke. On the eve of his annual State of the Union presidential address, he said these words. I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. 
I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. These allegations are false. What do we do when we have something shameful to hide and our reputations to protect? We deny, we lie, we hide the truth. Deny, lie, and hide. Now, Bill Clinton was probably not the first U.S. president to act in this manner, and he, he likely won't be the last. In the 1970s, there was a break-in at a complex called Watergate. Anyone familiar with the Watergate scandal? Yeah? Now, this was not an average run-of-your-mill break-and-enter. Thieves had been commissioned by someone within the government to enter this building. It was the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee. And, and, and what they were doing is they were photographing uh, confidential campaign documents and they installed listening devices into the telephones. When the Watergate scandal broke, President Richard Nixon did what we humans do best. Deny, lie, and hide. He said these words, I can say categorically that no one in the White House staff, no one in this administration was involved in this very bizarre incident. Do you see what he's doing? Deny lie, hide. History tells us that in both instances, eventually, eventually the truth came out. And this is where I want to focus. As the evidence against him piled up, Bill Clinton finally admitted that his relationship with Monica Lewinsky was, and I quote, not appropriate. It's not appropriate. He doesn't stand there and confess that he's committed adultery. He doesn't acknowledge that he's guilty of sexual immorality or the abuse of power. He simply states that his relationship with her is not appropriate. Likewise for Richard Nixon. He's caught red-handed in criminal activity. Activity that would eventually cost him the presidency. And he finally admits that, and again I quote, mistakes were made. In a television interview, he, he spoke of errors of judgment, but he insisted that in covering up the scandal, he's just acted in the best interests of the nation. Now, do you notice something here? Not once do they simply come out and openly confess, I was wrong. I sinned, and I lied to cover it up. I sinned, I'm sorry. They don't do that. And so the question is, why is it so hard for us as humans to confess uncategorically our sin? Why do we need to lie, deny, and hide? It's called shame. It's called shame. And it doesn't matter if you're the leader of the free world or not. At that moment, shame's going to make you feel like the least free citizen. We lie because our reputations are on the line. What will people think of me if they know who I am and what I've done? Maybe you're thinking, well, Jamie, that's politicians. Lying is what they do best. We're Christians. We don't do that. We do. Go and read about Ravi Zacharias. And I know this is painful to share. Read about how his organization handled allegations of sexual misconduct. Read about how they refused to believe those who had been abused by him and the lengths to which they went to conceal the truth. We can't say that we don't do this. We do. Today what I want to do is focus on someone else's sin. 
a national leader whose crimes easily overshadow those of Richard Nixon and Bill Clinton. Not only was this man the nation's leader, he was also a national hero. He's a decorated war hero, a man the people admire, a man the people respect. He was a man of God. But this man, even though he was a powerful warrior and a powerful king, he found that he was a man who could be enslaved. Enslaved by his passions. Enslaved by the consequences of his inability to control his own sexual desire. We all know Psalm 51. Sometime after his sin with Bathsheba, David wrote this poem to express his thoughts and emotions. And ever since that time, Psalm 51 has been our go-to when we, when we sin. It's our go-to prayer in response to sin. But before we look at this psalm, there's something I want us to consider. When exposed, David doesn't deny what he's done. He doesn't have the prophet Nathan killed. Just, just think about this. You're the prophet. You get the word from God, and, and God says, go to, go to David. Thanks, God. I, I'm going to lose my neck. David could have him killed, yeah? This is what governments do. They silence the whistleblower, keep things hush-hush. But David doesn't do that. Instead, he goes back to doing something he knew well. He wrote a song. A public song confessing a private sin. A song that's going to be prayed in public by the very people that look up to him. David the king, he takes his shame, he takes his humiliation, and he makes it into a song. And then he gives this song to his people. It becomes enshrined in the nation's hymn book. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, learn about my shame. Learn from my humiliation. And you ask yourself, who does this? A man after God's own heart. Let's go back to our reading from today, the opening verses, verses 1 to 4. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Let those words sink in. Do you notice what David doesn't do? He doesn't talk about errors of judgment. He doesn't insist that mistakes were made. He doesn't try to minimize his actions by arguing that his relationship with Bathsheba was simply not appropriate. Instead, he takes ownership of his actions. Look at these words he uses and look at their frequency. Blot out my transgressions. That's ownership. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. There's no blame shifting here. David takes responsibility. He doesn't say, but God, that woman, she's so beautiful. He takes ownership, he mans up. And think about these words that David uses. 
Now, they may seem s- similar, synonymous, but their, their meanings are actually quite significant, the different meanings. The word sin means to miss the mark. Iniquity refers to crookedness or perversion. Transgression means to rebel against a set standard. Guys, this is us. We miss the mark. We can so easily choose perversion. And boy, oh boy, we can, we can easily rebel, yeah? We know that sin is wrong, and yet we so easily choose it. In Africa, where we were serving, people often talk about casting out all sorts of demons or spirits in order to overcome sin. I was once listening to a a sermon, and at the end he was having an altar call. And the altar call was to cast out the spirit of marriage breakdown. I kid you not. Basically what it's saying, Dave, if you have a problem in your marriage, just come forward, respond to the call, we'll cast out a spirit, and everything's going to be okay. Do you hear what they're saying? It's not us. We're not the problem. It's them. They're to blame. They cause us to sin. Can I tell you, you don't need the devil to help you sin. You're perfectly capable of doing it all by yourself. This is us. We rebel. We walk on crooked paths. And ultimately, we miss the mark. After the Lewinsky affair, a special counsel to President Clinton said this, Tell it all. Tell it early. Tell it yourself. There's wisdom here. Tell it all. Tell it early. Tell it yourself. When you deny, lie, and hide, you are forced to live with the fear that one day your sins will be exposed. And that fear of exposure, trust me, I've lived with this, that fear of exposure will keep you a prisoner to a voice of shame within you. Confession is the only way to silence that accusing voice. Are we okay so far? I know this is heavy. Confession helps us deal with our sin. But how are you going to deal with that issue of guilt before God? How do you deal with that? Let's listen to these very first words uttered by David. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. So far we've seen our nature. Now we get to consider the nature of God. It's found in these three beautiful words. Mercy, love, compassion. David confesses what he's done and now he comes face to face with what it is he actually needs. To begin with, he needs mercy. Mercy is simply getting what we don't deserve. Or sorry, simply not getting what we deserve. What's the penalty for adultery? It's death. That's the law. And David knows that. But the man after God's own heart, he appeals to something outside the law. He appeals to something greater. He reaches out for the love, mercy, and compassion of God. That's what we need to reach out to. 
Look at the opening words in verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned. Now, I'll be honest. Whenever I read this psalm, these words trouble me deeply. As I read this and think about what David's done, it's like, is David denying that in his actions of taking a married woman and calling her to the king's bed and leaving her husband or having her husband killed to cover up the crime, it's as if he's denying that he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah. You know, I once read an article that suggested that David was guilty of rape. I saw it raised again this week. The argument is something like this. Bathsheba was in no position to refuse the king. She was seen, she was summoned, she must consent. David has abused his power as king to force her into his bed, and she's in no position to say no. Who is she to refuse the king? That's the argument. Against you, you only have I sinned. You know, this is a, a remarkable response considering that David committed adultery, some say rape. And then had the defiled woman's husband killed to cover up his crime. So is David denying his sin against this family or is he saying something else? Here's what I think David is saying in this very public declaration of guilt. Yes, I cannot deny that I succumbed to lust. Yes, I cannot deny that my actions resulted in adultery and death. But ultimately... Ultimately, my sin bears the most serious of all consequences. I have broken my relationship with God. This confession against you, you only have I sinned, it reminds Israel that even their king reports to a higher authority. You see, what's at stake here is not David's reputation as a leader. What's at stake is his relationship with God. You may be familiar with the phrase, to fall from grace. You're familiar with the phrase? Yes. When someone of high standing is caught in a moral failure, that's what we say, they've fallen from grace. Let's think about those words, a fall from grace. It means that someone of whom much is expected has fallen from good standing in the eyes of the community. Their name is now ruined. Their reputation is soiled. That's why we deny lion hides. I'm sure these words were used in relation to Bill Clinton and Richard Nixon. But what David does here is he points us to a far graver reality. Against you, you only have I sinned. This is much more than a political or social consequence. It's a spiritual one. And if we refuse to take responsibility and ownership of our sins, if we deny, if we lie and hide, what we're going to do is fall away from the only thing that can restore us. Grace. David has broken his relationship with God and only grace can restore that. If that's you here tonight, my words to you are, don't fall from grace. I once read an author who, who said he pictured his sins as being like, a, he's, building a, uh, he's filling in bricks that are walling him off from God. It's like, here's me, here's God, and my sin, it's like it's, it's separated me. It's walled me off. Let me stress this. Don't allow feelings of guilt and shame to lead you to construct the wall that God has already destroyed. Can I say that again? 
Don't allow your feelings of guilt and shame to lead you to construct a wall that God has already destroyed. I can't imagine the guilt that David is consumed by. But he doesn't build a wall. Instead, he throws himself upon the compassion, love, and mercy of God. Let me stress this point. Broken human relationships can always be explained away as someone else's fault. I can have a problem with Stephen here and say, Stephen, our relationship is broken down, and I can point the finger at you and say you're to blame. Can I tell you the same is never true when it comes to God and us? If you are consumed with guilt, don't build that wall. Look at verse 10. A beautiful verse. I think we have it just over there. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I love the way this is paraphrased in the Message Bible. God, make a fresh start in me. Shape a Genesis week from the chaos of my life. I read that and I just love the way it captures David's desire for God to do something new. God, as you did in the beginning, out of the chaos, make something good. But this time, let it be for me a pure heart. I could ask you to raise your hand. How many times have you prayed this prayer? How many times have you prayed this prayer where you earnestly cry out to God to get him to do that new thing in you, to create that pure heart? Because this is what grace does, yes? Grace offers a fresh start. It allows us this new beginning. But can I tell you, a new beginning doesn't wipe out the consequence of your sin. Consider verse 11. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Think about David. David witnessed the decline of Saul. Saul was the man. He's the man. He's anointed as king. God's spirit comes upon him. But what happened when Saul sinned? He's rejected by God. He's cast from his presence. The spirit, it departs from his life. Saul is consumed with jealousy. He goes mad and ultimately he loses the kingship. He loses the opportunity to lead God's people. And I think that's what David is saying here. He's saying, God, don't don't take away the kingship from me. God, don't, don't depart from my life. Give me a second chance to lead your people in your ways, O God. Think about David's sin. Maybe you're saying, well, I'm not a king, so it doesn't really affect me as equally. But think about this. His sin had the power not just to destroy his life, but to destroy the lives of those who were depending on him as a leader. The same is true for us. Sexual sin has the power to destroy the leader that God wants you to be in your home. Whether you're the dad or the mum. Think about myself as a husband, as a father. If I walk in a straight line, then my wife and my kids are going to live in a far greater environment. 
But if I choose the crooked path, it's not just my life that's affected. It's their lives as well. How often have we seen sexual sin destroy not just the man who's committed adultery, but the impact it has on a family? The onus is on us. I need to walk with God if I'm to lead my children into following God. How can I, how can I serve those properly that God has entrusted to me if I'm not walking in a straight path? I could only think what would happen if I committed adultery. What would any reasonable wife say? Pack your bags. You're out of the house, buddy. My Italian wife, she would say, Quella è la porta. There's the door, buddy. Just keep walking. Why? Because you've been unfaithful. Not only have you lost the right to be her husband, you've also lost the right to lead your own children. How can I lead them if I'm not walking in God's ways. And when we break it down like this, you can kind of get a sense of David's inner turmoil. He knows he's been unfaithful. And yet he doesn't want to end up on the scrap heap like Saul. And so here he is. He's pleading with God. Give me a second chance to fulfill that responsibility to be the leader that you've called me to be. Give me that opportunity to continue to lead your people. He feels there's an a lesson to be learned from his act of unfaithfulness. And that's essentially the thrust of verses 12 and 13. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. And that's how Psalm 51 functions for us. It helps us to turn back to God. But here, David, he's just pleading. Don't remove your presence from my life. Let me remain as king. Let me lead others to the God that I know, the God that forgives sin. I heard a story once of a small boy who asked his father. He said, Dad, if, if God forgives our sin, then what's the problem with sinning? You ever heard something like that before, parents? Kids have this knack of asking these great theological questions. And so the father, what he did is he said, uh, he gave his son a, a piece of wood, a hammer and some nails. And he said, son, what I want you to do is I want you to hammer those nails into the wood. The son does it. And then the dad says, now I want you to pull them out. So the son thinks it's strange, but he, he does it anyway. And the father says, son, What's left? What do you see? The son looks at him and he's like, well, uh, I, I, I see a piece of wood. And he says, son, I want you to look closer. What do you see? And he says, nothing. I see nothing. And he says, son, look closer. And then the son says, I see the woods, the wood, but as I look closer, I see marks. Here's the point. God forgives sin, but sin always leaves a mark. We know the story. God does allow David to continue as king. But from that point on, his kingship is plagued with strife. 
prophet Nathan had foretold that the sword would not depart from his house. One son rapes his half-sister. Her enraged brother Absalom waits two full years to murder his own half-brother. This then sets off a, a chain of events that leads to an armed revolt against his own father. A revolt that nearly brings down the entire kingdom. If you're sitting here today and saying, it's okay, God forgives sin. Just remember, sin always leaves a mark. It has the potential to destroy your destiny. About three weeks ago, I spoke to some graduating students, Sudanese, who were in Uganda going back to some very hard mission fields to minister amongst Muslims. I told them, do not fear the devil. Fear only one thing. Fear sin. It can destroy the destiny that God has for you. Verse 14. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior. Now for the Hebrew people, blood guilt is something that derives from murder, the, the shedding of an innocent person's blood. What we see here is that David is openly acknowledging his role in Uriah's death. But there's a lesson for us here as well. If, if God can forgive David for the great evil that he's done, how much more can he forgive us for the sins we've committed? If you're here today and say, I've built a wall because God couldn't possibly forgive me for the sins that I've done. If he can forgive David, how much more us? Verse 15. I love this verse. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Do you know why I love this verse so much? David's guilt means that he should be silent before a just and holy God. He's got nothing to say. And yet he is someone who is able to receive forgiveness, expressed in confession, and turn to thankfulness and praise. Can we be that person? Can we be that person that knows that God has forgiven us despite what we've done, despite who we are, and express that in thanksgiving and praise? Verses 16 and 17. We're almost done. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Now, for those who don't know me that well, I originally came from a Pentecostal background. And, you know, we'd often get people preach, and they'd preach in a way that probably wasn't always exactly faithful to Scripture, but it was designed to encourage people to build them up. I once heard a guy come, and he was doing a message for the offering. We often have offering messages. And he used a verse from Psalm 50, verse 10. God says this, Every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, we all know that verse, yeah? You've all heard it shared about. And so this preacher for the offering, he went on to explain that our God is a God of abundance. He has the cattle on a thousand hills. It's like he's some wealthy Texas cattle rancher. 
Therefore, because God's so rich, there's no reason you should be without. There's no reason you should be in lack. God is a God of abundance. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Can I tell you, that's not what Psalm 50 verse 10 is saying. If you read the entire psalm, context is key. God is rebuking the people for their empty sacrifices. They think it's enough to turn up at the altar, bring another dead cow, go through the motions, perform the ritual, and God will forgive us. And God's like, no, I don't need another dead animal. All the animals in the forest are mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. So don't you bother coming here bringing me another dead cow. I don't need another dead one. I've got living ones on a thousand hills. I don't want a dead one. But what I want is the one thing I would never take from you. The one thing I ask that you would give to me. And that one thing is your heart. What David's doing here is he's continuing that theme in Psalm 51, the very next psalm. He says, God, you don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. What he's saying is don't just go through the motions of doing church. Don't just go through the motions of looking religious. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Do you know the law prescribes sacrifice for sin? You've got to bring a dead animal. That's the law. But once again, David looks beyond the law to something greater. God doesn't really long for another dead cow. What God longs for is inward change. That we would be a people called by his name who would love him more than we love sin. And let's be honest, we're often rebuking sin with one hand, but pulling it back with the other. David knows what God wants. That's why he concludes with these words in verse 19. Then, once there is this inward change, a heart broken in repentance, then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous in burnt offerings offered whole, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let me bring this to a close. Some of you may, be, uh, may have seen the film Flight with Denzel Washington. Anyone seen this? If you've not seen it, let me give you an adults-only warning. It is gritty. Okay, it's very gritty. Denzel Washington, he plays a pilot who miraculously crash lands a plane in a storm. And this guy, he's a national hero. Everybody loves him. He's the man. Or so it seems. As the film unfolds, you see the reality that he's actually living a lie. He's an alcoholic. He abuses drugs. He's violent. Sexually promiscuous. His life is on a downward spiral. In fact, his entire life is one big plane wreck. And he's lost everything that, that really matters in life. His marriage, his relationship with his son, his soul. At the end of the film, he appears before a commission that's investigating the crash. 
All he has to do is tell one more lie. One more lie and he can walk away free. But as he sits there in that commission, the light obviously shines upon him. And he realizes, unless he finally faces the cold hard truth about who he really is, then he'll never ever truly be free. The final scene, he's in prison. He's sharing his story with a group of inmates and he he says these words. This is going to sound real stupid for a man who's locked up in prison. But for the first time in my life, I'm free. We can deny, we can lie, we can hide. But eventually the truth will catch up with us. Or we can be free. Clean up or cover up? Which one will we choose?